The question is, what's going on with the future of feminism? What's going on with Me Too? What's going on? What's going on? Thank you so much for your brave and beautiful spirits. Talk to us. Jackie, it's always good to be here. Hello, everyone. What an honor and a pleasure to be with an amazing group of women in this panel. So, um, this time is known for many things. It is known, and I think it will be known, for a time of fierceness where people are finally speaking truth to power. It is known as a time of anger. We are angry and pissed off at all the injustice. I don't know about you, but I am. It is known as the time of courage, time of righteousness. I don't think it will be known as a time of love. I don't think it will be known as the time of love. And, and I don't know how do we actually go about balancing between revolutionary change and love. On the one hand, we cannot think that, I mean, I do believe that love is actually bigger than all, but when I see the injustice that women have gone and still are going through, you know, it's hard to deal with that. We still have, I mean, the statistics is the same. I've been working on this field for 25 years, nothing has changed. And before I actually studied the past, nothing has changed. Still, one in three women get raped. Still, one in three women get violated. Still, we are getting paid 80% for every dollar a man make. If you are white, if you are a woman of color, it goes all the way until 56 cents. Still, we are not represented in decision making. Still, we are undermined in political processes. It's still, I mean, like, it gets marginal changes. We're doing better, but we're not there yet. And there is, you know, and on the one hand, you believe in love, but you also, as one woman, one, a life coach in America told me, honey, all these rapists, all these killers, all these men who are pillaged and burnt and all of that, they're all innocents trying to meet love. And I warn of such kind of love. I worked and grew up in conflict areas. And I not only grew up in conflict area, I worked from Bosnia to Congo to Rwanda to Iraq to Afghanistan to all southern Sudan, all kinds of conflict areas. And if you tell a woman who has been raped and her daughters have been raped and her sons have been forced to rape them and, and, and they be pillaged and all of that, that this is all innocence trying to meet love, they will smack you and they will have the right to. So though love is bigger than all, Love is bigger than all. It is not all innocence trying to meet love. On the other hand, when we, oh, before I go there actually, so we need to speak when we see injustice. When we ignore it, when we ignore seeing, acknowledging, and hearing injustice, we, allow, we legitimize it and allow for the corruption of our own values of our own values. And that means all of us, by the way, because this is not the other who is committing the gender bias in this country, it's everyone. Patriarchy is a process that we are all part of. It is not in him. It is also in here. And sometimes actually a lot in here too. Right? And so, you cannot ignore injustice, and yet when you lead with anger, when you lead with anger, you risk becoming the very thing we despise. And I learned that the hard way. I was 23 years old when I started Women for Women International, a group that helps women survivors of wars. And at 30, I think, or 28, someone asked me, what keeps you going? I started the group with helping 33 women, and all of a sudden becomes half a million women, and like hundreds of millions of dollars are being raised and helping women survivors of wars. And someone asked me, what keeps you going? And I tell them, I am pissed off at injustice. And I still have that anger in me. And it's very personal for me. It's not about only these other women. It is my grandmother and it is my mother and it is me who have gone through that violence. 
And yet, I caught myself in, as I, in the moment of as I was fighting for women's rights and to see our diversity and our voice and our integrity, I had caught myself in a moment becoming the oppressor of all men as the oppressor. As I was fighting against cornering women in single one image, I have also done the same to men. And it was in a moment in Afghanistan when I was working in a camp and two men who looked like the Taliban, as far as I'm concerned, they had the long beard, they had the outfit, you know, the whole thing. And I was scared as they were walking towards me. I was like, they are going to kill me. These are the Taliban and they're going to kill me. And I tell my Afghan colleague, let's walk slowly to the car and rush out. And she tells me, you cannot do that. We can't abandon the women that we are helping, so we have to like hold it and let's just see how it works out. And you know, people, you know, I work in conflict, so people ask me if I ever had fear because they think I'm a fierce woman, all of that, and I have shaven hair. I have a lot of fear in me. Every step is, is despite of my fear. You know, it's like, it's not in absence of fear. So these men are walking towards me and I am shaking. My heart is pounding and I'm scared. I was like, this is the Taliban. They are going to kill me today. Instead, as they arrive, they spread their arms and they say, we want to thank you for making our wives happy. And I was, I held their arms and I shook their hands, but I was ashamed of myself. I was ashamed that I had feared and my own stereotype and my own prejudice and my own anger had made all, in that case, Afghan men, as one thing, the oppressor. And it was an eye-opening experience for me. It's like, oh my God, I am becoming what I am fighting against. And I started saying, I need to explore another path forward. Another path forward. You know, as the, you know, as a founder of Women Forum, as a feminist, forget about women. As a feminist, I, for years, would rally and speak and tell women to speak up and break their silence and all that. And we like create shelters for women and all kinds of, you know, but all kinds of solution for helping women to stand on their feet. But we were not talking with men. We were not talking at all with them. We were just telling them how bad they are and, telling, and fixing all the realities that they are damaging in women's lives. But we were not talking with men. And after that incident with these Taliban-looking guys, I, Afghan men, I started saying, I need to understand the other. And the other in this case is not Trump, it's men. And in my context, I am someone who works in the, around the world. And I started talking with them. And I see, realized they were the men who did not kill, refused to kill. And there was no room for them within masculinity. And they were the men who refused to rape and there was no room for them within masculinity in conflict. They were the good men who did not understand what not having power means. Good men who did not understand what not having power means. There were the men in my own family, in my own culture, in my own community, in my own religion, who actually were part of oppressing women. And it wasn't only these other men, it was in my context. And finally, the turning point for me was I, moving from the anger I had to crying at a man, as, I know, as he told the woman he raped, as he was raping her, he says, my heart, I no longer have a heart. My soul died long time ago, he told her. And I find myself transforming. I was like, oh my God, now that's compassion. So where do we go from there? And what am I asking you of to do? We are in a moment in anger and we are in a moment of injustice. And how do we transform and hold both injustice and love and revolutionary love at the same time? How do we go from there? How do we explore the other and transform ourselves? Now, the only way I can share, because I have two more minutes, 
is restorative justice. And I was, yesterday, the poet Mark Napo was here, and I was hearing him speak, and he described restorative justice as restoring our heartfulness. Heartfulness here. I worked in Rwanda, as, as I mentioned, different countries, and what I learned from South Africa in their truth and reconciliation, and from Rwanda in their own version of the grass court, they call it, their own version of truth and reconciliation, is that for restorative justice, me, what to do, is that we restore the damage that we have done. If you killed a, man, a woman's son, you become her son. You are to serve her as her son has served her. If you burnt a farm, you are to become the farmer of that farm. If you destroyed a home, you are to build that home. That is restorative justice. And they have few pillars to do it. One, so they restore. Second, you have to admit what you have done with authenticity. With authenticity, so um, uh, the, the, the accused have to stand up in front of the whole community and say, this is what I have done. And if the community feel, now not the whole community, the elders that the committee select, feel, not here, here, their sincerity, then they, have, they show a path forward to restoring justice. If you don't, you go back to prison. You go back to your own thing. Third, the restorative justice include all of us being part of it, and it's not only them and us. We are all part of restoring what has damaged. And fourth, it is the victim side that shows the path for reconciliation. It is blacks in South Africa. It is the Tutsis in Rwanda. It is, frankly, even African Americans in this country with Martin Luther King. It is that side that has legit the legitimacy to show the path forward for truth and reconciliation. Now we are here talking about what is the future of the feminist movement, and I am coming at it from a global perspective. I'm sharing what I learned around the world back here to America. Because I do believe we need truth and reconciliation in this country between the sexes. And for that to happen, for that to happen, we all need to show up. In our complicity and complacency, in our hearts and in our lives, and it's not us and them, it is all of us who are part of creating the world that we are in, and it is a patriarchal world. And as for women, this is indeed our moment. And it is our moment not to replicate and lead with in patriarchal mode. This is our moment to own what leadership is from a feminine perspective. From a feminine. This is our moment to define, to not only define, but demonstrate what that leadership means. We risk replicating what we are fighting against if we do not do that. And I want to end finally in one story. I'm a Muslim, and I love God. And I can say that only in the presence of Reverend Lewis and everyone here and what you guys have all built in this church. And a few years ago, I had a, um, the opportunity to go to Mecca, the pilgrimage where for Muslims is the house of God. And I have issues with Saudi Arabia. I think we, I hope you all do. And my issues, this was before the killing of Khashoggi. I had issues always. They are very oppressive society for women, for minorities, for everyone. I have issues. So I go, I go to Mecca and I'm scared of the Saudis and I'm scared of the Saudi police. And I actually, I'm not only scared, I hate them. I mean, I'm telling you the truth, right? So I go and it's a long story, but I get lost in the process. And I can't find a guy to teach me how to show me to around Mecca. It's called the house of God in Islam. And I can't find anybody. And I'm alone. And I'm scared. And what do I end up doing? I go to the police. And I'm scared of that policeman. And I go to him. And I was like, I'm really scared of you. You're Saudi. If you're going to tell me how to cover properly, I, like, don't touch me. Don't tell me. Don't criticize me. Because if you do, I don't want to resent God. And I love God. And you know, I'm having this monologue in front of this guy. <laughs> And I was just like, don't ruin it for me. Don't criticize me, but I have to, I'm lost and I don't know what to do. So you come to tell me, you tell me. And this man, this man that I'm scared of, 
So I tell him I'm scared of him. End up, end up being my angel. And he shows me, he's like, no worries, this is how you do it. And he, it's, it's a different, it's a long story of how you do the, the pilgrimage to Mecca. And this is what you need to do, and you can do it alone, and you don't need a guide, and he calms me, and I go, and I go into the, the process. And it is, you see stripes, if I was a bird, all women are wearing black and all men are wearing white and they are next to each other and we are all, all equal. And I see these men that I'm scared of because they look like fundamentalists and I don't like them. And I look in that moment, we were all equal in front of God. And when you pray and you don't know who is the king and who is the servant and who is the queen and who is the maid, you do not know we are all equal in front of God. And that's what I mean by a revolutionary love. Is be, speak up about the injustice, but remember our equality in front of love and remember the love we need to lead with. And that is the time for a feminine kind of love. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm really honored to be part of this amazing gathering and to be on this, on this panel with my sisters. I want to tell you a little bit about my maternal legacy because that really guides me in my vision for feminism. I was blessed to be raised within a pioneering Jewish feminist community that was forming in New York City in the 1970s and as well as in other places. And I learned from my community that Feminism is a Jewish practice that I was taught that may not seem obvious to people, but the, the tradition that I inherited was that this was a central practice and that being a religious person is and should be a full body, full self experience. So I learned early on to be suspicious of any instructions to compartmentalize parts of myself or to value one part of my identity over another. My mother's generation insisted that they not be forced to choose whether to be Jews or feminists, that in fact they could not choose, that doing so would require an act of violence. And I later found the words for this in the writing of the feminist theologian Judith Plasco, who said, I am not a Jew in the synagogue and a feminist in the world. I am a Jewish feminist and a feminist Jew in every moment of my life. So this, this is a tremendous and challenging birthright, to be who you are, to bring your full self into every moment and every place in your life. And the opening of that possibility created really an explosion of creativity in the Jewish community, as it has in many other communities, inviting new perspectives, new rituals, new leaders, and greater inclusion of other marginalized people. And it also involves a lot of risk to show up that way in your daily life. And this is the ongoing work that I think we need to carry forward and reinvent in every generation. In addition to being a second generation Jewish feminist, I'm also a second generation historian. And that also has been a real gift for me. History is fundamentally an optimistic, hopeful endeavor. Because it presumes that change is possible and that in fact it's happening all the time around us. The way that I do history also presumes that history making is not just the purview of some other group out there, but rather that we are all historical agents. We are all making history every day. And although in America we do a really bad job of teaching history, so it's not usually taught this way, I also believe that history is fundamentally a practice of empathy. It's about listening to the voices of others across time and space and believing that we have something to learn from them and that in fact we are part of the same story. Of course, history can also be disheartening when we see cycles of repetition or missed opportunities or are simply overwhelmed by the enormity and complexity of historical dynamics as I feel much of the time these days. But I also take comfort in my role as a historian. I think it is very tempting 
in these difficult times to assume that the challenges that we are facing are unprecedented, that we're in this mess deeper than ever before, that the stakes are higher than ever before. But I would say from my perch as a historian that we need to pull back from that kind of superlative game of always thinking worst, deeper, worst, and instead look to the past to learn about how we can face this moment productively. One of the biggest lessons that I think history teaches us is that movements are always messy. Show me a movement that was broad-based and effective and without fracture or crisis, and I will show you a great PR job. <laughs> so we need to look at where we failed in the past and where we had success, right? How did we build coalitions that cultivated deeper relationships despite differences? Where did we fall short? What did we miss? What did we learn about the nature of coalitions so that we can modulate our expectations? As the African-American activist, historian, and singer Bernice Johnson Reagan reminds us, and she wrote this great piece about coalition that I think everyone should read, she said, you don't go into coalition because you just like it. The only reason you would consider trying to team up with somebody who could possibly kill you is because that's the only way you figure you can stay alive. So when I look to the movements of the past, and here I'm thinking of so many movements from feminism to the labor movement to socialism to civil rights, I am also very keenly aware of the fact that they have often come undone over the attempt to enforce rigid ideological alignments. Movements have fractured again and again over ever narrower definitions of the true cause or the most dire form of oppression. And in this historical moment, we do not have the luxury of splintering in pursuit of ideological purity. If we are going to survive this administration, we need to learn how to build coalitions and hold the complexity that comes along with that. We need to find ways to create an intersectional movement that does not demand ideological alignment. The purpose of intersectionality, after all, is to help us realize that identities are complex and diverse and multifaceted. We cannot create simple equations to explain or describe or prescribe them, and we cannot be expected to leave behind parts of ourselves in order to be welcomed at the table. And as women, as women, we need to be particularly careful that we do not fall prey to infighting in the guise of intersectionality. Women are still pitted against one another as a way to undermine our collective power and distract from our shared goals. So we need to keep the following questions front and center. Who benefits from the fight? How can we have the difficult conversations and express disagreements in ways that still advance our shared agenda? This requires that we approach politics with a spirit of inquiry and humility, not I know the truth about who you are and why you're here, but rather, tell me your story. What inspires you? What makes you afraid? We need to ask questions from a place of not knowing. We need to invite questions and vulnerabilities of others, and we need to know when our own traumas require creating respectful space. If we are going to build a movement based on love and justice, we need to make room for complexity and vulnerability. The things that we really need to say to each other aren't gonna fit on protest signs. And perhaps most crucially, we need to know our stories, our own stories and the stories of others. Transformation is rooted in our stories and knowing them. I became a historian because I love that potential for transformation, that aha moment that happens when we hear a story and connect with someone else's experience. Without our stories, we are impoverished. Stories are our most important resources and tools. They invite inquiry and empathy and humility. They shake us out of our political posturing. Sometimes they fill us with righteous anger at the gap between the world as it is and the world as it should be. They help us see the world differently and help us imagine what the world could become. So we need to be steeped in each other's stories. And at the same time, we need to be free to build new narratives together. Jewish tradition has taught me that we can hold on to our formative stories and also create new narratives and interpretations. The Jewish community reads the entire Torah every year. 
week by week, portion by portion, year after year. When we finish the final portion, we just start right again from the beginning. And this is not out of habit or out of some kind of love of repetition or some kind of obsessive behavior, mostly not out of that. <laughs> it's really out of a deep confidence that the old stories can become new when we read them together. But we can't build those new narratives if we don't know each other's stories, and we can't build new narratives if we're not in conversation with one another. This is why I have encouraged the communities I'm part of to stay in relationship with the larger movement even when it feels challenging and uncomfortable, and to keep moving forward. We are not going to figure it out all first and then create a movement, right? I've learned that from studying feminism over the years. You have to just throw yourself in and just start moving. We're gonna make the road as we walk it. I wanna end by sharing an, an excerpt from the poet and essayist Adrian Rich from her 1982 essay, Split at the Root. And this is to me a deep expression of revolutionary love. It's about being brave and gentle with ourselves and with others and acknowledging both the limitations and dangers and going forward with love and dedication anyway. These are her words. Yet we can't wait for the undamaged to make our connections for us. We can't wait to speak until we are perfectly clear and righteous. There is no purity, and in our lifetimes, no end to this process. I know that in the rest of my life, the next half century or so, every aspect of my identity will have to be engaged. The middle-class white girl taught to trade obedience for privilege. The Jewish lesbian raised to be a heterosexual Gentile. The woman who first heard oppression named and analyzed in the black civil rights struggle. The woman with three sons, the feminist who hates male violence, the woman limping with a cane, the woman who has stopped bleeding are also accountable. The poet who knows that beautiful language can lie, that the oppressor's language sometimes sounds beautiful. The woman trying as part of her resistance to clean up her act. Thank you. everyone. Um, I'm so deeply blessed and honored uh, to be here with all of you and my second time at Revolutionary Love with my dear big sister, Reverend Jackie. Because when Reverend Jackie tells me to show up somewhere, I was in California, I came back and I'm going back to California for you. That's what I'm doing. I got my suitcase in the back and just whole and, 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 and feeling full being on the stage with um, Zainab and, and Judith, like you're words just moved me. Um, I, I've just gotten set up really nicely. It was perfect, just the order, and here I go. <laughs> I'm gonna start first by celebrating women, because we have to celebrate ourselves, and we are oftentimes set up to fight, 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 and then we don't remember the times when we win and how many times we have won and all the good we have done. And in the last two years, a lot of good has come, and I'm gonna talk about it because I have been a part of a lot of this work with many of you in this room. In the last two years, women led the largest single-day demonstration in American history. And while it was the largest single-day demonstration in American history, it was also in every continent in this world. And then when we marched in the largest single day demonstration in American history, we made a, a pact and we said that we can't just march, we gotta build power. And so what we're gonna do here in the United States is we're gonna win back that house because that house belongs to us. And then, and then we won back the house, but that wasn't enough for the women because the women don't just like to win, we like to make history because that's what women do. So what did we do? We won back the house and we um, elected the first two Native American women to go to Congress. And we uh, elected the first two Latinas from Texas, and we elected the first black woman from Massachusetts, and we uh, elected the youngest black woman to go to Congress, and we elected the youngest woman ever to go to Congress, right here from New York City. We also elected 
the two first Muslim American women to go to Congress. And of course, my favorite of them all, we elected the first Palestinian American women to go to Congress. And so we have the potential to win. And of course, winning is not just about electoral winning, because I believe this, and I know many of you in this room believe this, we're not gonna get free through the ballot box. But what the ballot box does, it alleviates some suffering. It stops some of the hemorrhaging that is happening on our communities and our rights. But even through a lot of this win winning and having women kind of set up the resistance, because I always imagine for a second, even with all the controversy and drama that we've been in at the Women's March, because I'm just walking drama, I just breathe drama, like I wake up controversial every day. I thought to myself, what, where would we be as a nation if the day after a fascist was elected into the White House and was inaugurated, what would have, what, where would we be? Where would our morale be? Where would the resistance be if there was no Women's March? I think about that all the time. And so I am proud of that work regardless of all that has happened over the course of the last almost two and a half years. So that's the celebration. I celebrate women every day. I celebrate those on the front lines. I celebrate the most marginalized, pained, broken women who are on the front lines, the ones who have a lot to risk and are still out here fighting for all of us. But what I always say when I think about this idea of revolutionary love, you can't have revolutionary love without revolutionary truth. And so, and we also can't have revolutionary love without understanding that within love there is struggle. So this is not just about, you know, we're all here, we all love each other. We gotta, sometimes we gotta struggle to love one another. You struggle to love your partner. Sometimes I struggle loving everybody, my family. Like, I struggle with the movement, I love it sometimes. Sometimes I question my love for the movements that I'm a part of. And I think it requires us to just speak some uncomfortable truths because love sometimes is uncomfortable, right? Love doesn't always feel good. And we have this perception of what love is supposed to be, but in order for us to get to that revolutionary love, we gotta be honest with one another so we can get to that real good feeling of love. And when we talk about an intersectional feminist movement, it never happened before. They tried it many times. All our black elders have told us it doesn't work because these white ladies, they, when they get what they want, they just leave us behind, right? We talk about the suffragist movements, the white ladies get the right to vote, and then the black ladies gotta wait decades later to get the right to vote, right? And when the white women get uncomfortable in a movement because their feelings got hurt, or maybe they, something happened that makes them uncomfortable, they have the luxury of walking away. I don't have the luxury of walking away. The black women don't have the luxury of walking away. The black trans women don't have the luxury of walking away, right? The indigenous women don't have the same luxury, right? They, undocumented women, we don't, we don't have that same luxury. So we gotta be a little uncomfortable just for a second. Intersectionality is something everybody talks about now. They do panels and conferences about it. It's like the new thing. First of all, it's not new. Let's just be clear. Dr. Kimberly Crenshaw in the 80s came up with this term, and it's a black woman gave us a term. She had a very specific definition, so you can't make it up as you go along. And there was a white woman at a convention that was like, we gotta have an intersectional feminist movement, and that means we all gotta work together. And I was waiting for the second, third part, it never came. And so I said to her, with all due respect, that's not what intersectionality is. Intersectionality is about the idea that you can't talk about gender justice without talking about racial justice and economic justice and all kinds of justice and environmental justice and immigrant rights. That you have to understand that you can't combat anti-black racism without also combating xenophobia and homophobia and transphobia and Islamophobia and all kinds of things. And that we're in a moment in this movement where people got to make a choice. And you said this perfectly, it's a messy movement. And people are coming to a movement being like, we gotta be united. I don't know what unity means to anybody, but I'm gonna tell you what it means to me. Unity is not uniformity. And if you're coming into a movement where you think we're all gonna be the same and we're all gonna believe the same things, then I'm telling you right now, this is not the case, the wrong place, not this movement. Why? Because how could it be that we could be in a feminist movement where we're all gonna agree on the same things? How is that possible? 
We didn't grow up the same. We're not from the same places. We don't follow the same faiths. We didn't grow up in the same culture. Some of us are immigrants. Some of us are fourth generation. Some of us are indigenous. Some of us trace our lineage back to enslaved people. We're not the same people. So there's no way that we could be in a movement where we're all going to agree. So now we're going to have to come to terms with the fact that we have to be in a movement with people we don't agree with. Guess what? You're all part of families where you don't agree with people. So how do you expect me to be in agreement with you? And so what I say to people also in the, in the movement that I'm a part of and what I struggle with all the time is this idea that somebody got to be less of who they are to make somebody else feel comfortable. It doesn't work like that. And also we come to a movement where people want to bring conditions to the table. If you come to a table to go to the border and help undocumented immigrants, you cannot say before I come to the border, do you believe the things that I believe or in order for me to come to a table to fight against police brutality, I got to make sure, well, this is not how it works. This movement requires people to come to the most broken people in this country. The people who need you the most in this country right now with absolutely no conditions because solidarity comes with no conditions. That is true solidarity that we need in the movement. And for me, when I show up in a space, I'm just going to be quite clear. I come Palestinian and Muslim. I come a socialist. I come a progressive. I come from Brooklyn. I bring it all to the table. And that's just who I'm going to be. So if you can't handle all of me, then I don't know what to tell you. But this is what you're going to get when you come to the movie. And I also say that within revolutionary love, there is revolutionary anger. Because anger comes from love, and we have to redefine anger. Because that's where the tropes come for the black woman and the, and the women of color, because we're so angry. You know why we're angry? Because we love our children, and we love our community, and we are angry at injustice that is happening. So my anger doesn't come from a place of hatred and divisiveness. It comes from a place of deep love for people because I don't like to see people broken and hurt and traumatized in my country. So that's okay. Come angry to the movement. We love you angry in the movement. And in fact, when you're not angry, I'm going to ask you why you're not angry. I'm just going to be clear. <laughs> and I also will say this, that as a Muslim, I struggle in the feminist movement. Because I wonder sometimes if people see me and they see feminists. And I also ask people in the feminist movement, they come to me and they say, Linda, what do you got to say about the Muslim women in Iran who are being forced to wear hijab? As if I was going to actually say, what a great government, good for them. Listen, <laughs> what I'm asking for in a movement that I'm a part of is that as outraged as we should all be, at a government like Iran or Saudi Arabia, at the oppressive policies against women and punishing women for what they choose to wear or not wear, I'm asking you to be consistent. I'm asking you to be angry at governments like France who don't allow me to wear hijab in a public university or to have a public sector job. Because my feminism is consistent. My fight for justice is consistent. So this movement requires consistency. So guess what? Feminism looks like me, it sounds like me, it dresses like me. So I too am a Muslim feminist who is very proud to wear my hijab, but can also be angered at women who are forced to wear the cloth that I choose to wear. And so I'll end by saying that in this moment, what it requires for us is to under a fascist administration, one that is policing our bodies and policing our communities and policing our choices and policing our speech and the way in which we want to organize, it sometimes requires you to say to yourself, maybe it's just not about me for a second. Maybe it's about people who have a lot less than I have. Maybe people who are so broken in this moment while I'm a little bit more whole, no, nobody's really whole in this country. Because you remember, when one ain't free, none of you are free. I don't care how much privilege you have. But sometimes it's about this idea of saying, you know what, it's okay for me to be in a space where I'm a little uncomfortable or someone's challenging something that I believe. Because why I'm th while, why, the reason why I'm there is not really for me. It's for that undocumented mom or for that black mother who lost her son to police violence. Or it's for 
it's for this black trans community who has lost over 40 women just, just this year. And guess what? Mostly silence, even from progressive movements that claim to stand up for all people. And so I leave you with this quote that moves me and centers me in the work that I do. And it is from an Aboriginal woman, an Aboriginal activist from Australia. And this is what they say. If you have come here to help me, you are wasting your time. But if you have come here because you believe that your liberation is bound up with mine, then let us work together. Thank you very much, Middle Church. Wow. I'll say it again, wow. And now with Jackie on the stage, let's just look, right? All right, we only have about 15 minutes, so we're gonna do what we've done before and get as many questions um, out as we can first, and then we will turn it over to you all, and we'll pass mics, and I'll help keep the conversation going, okay? So um, who do you leave behind building a coalition? So I know there was controversy around the Women's March. There was an anti-choice movement that wanted to join and didn't. Uh, do we leave our trans siblings behind if there are folks who are anti-trans? Do we leave our Palestinian? I'm Egyptian, so I'm with you. Uh, who do we leave behind in this coalition building? And I asked that yesterday. I'm curious what your answers are. Remember, we'll get one more question, one or two more. Hi, thank you all for being here. My question is, how do we combat the manipulation and the myth and the messaging that criticism of Israel is equivalent to anti-Semitism? Because I know you all agree that that's not true. Let's do one more question. How do we make sure that we hold it together because things are gonna come at us that we've never thought of before. Okay. I, I don't want us to leave anybody behind. Yeah, so I'm gonna, thank you. Um, I think what Linda's saying about the messiness of movements, is I'm saying movements are messy. I think we set a table. I think we say bring your stuff, bring your anger, bring your people. I think some people aren't going to come. So to me, the, the intention is in the invitation. You are welcome to come on your way to where you're going. You are welcome to move while you're still figuring out your You know, you're welcome to come and move while you're still getting it together. And there's got to be some rules and norms at the table, right? We're going to not stink on each other. We're going to call each other names. We're not going to, you know, BS each other. We're not going to lie to each other. So I think those norms can hold us. But like, I didn't come here fully formed. I was born, you know, black and with no hair. So I, I mean, I just I didn't come here fully formed. So I think we're in motion. And I think well, the idea is, these are the norms for moving. Bring your stuff and let's go. And I think that is one way that we hold on to each other and keep it going. So we don't have to leave somebody behind. That's my thought. Yeah. I actually agree. I think we leave no one behind. And I think we need to have a new way of conversations, in my opinion, because we are, be, we are leading with anger. And I do agree that anger is important to light the match of the fire. But if we are not in control of how is it that fire could consume us. And so it is important to have that. Com we have to engage and we have to engage in a way where we are hearing and listening to each other's stories in a different way. And I want to connect it to the anti-Semitism in Israel. Um, because I'm an Arab and a Muslim and was married to a Palestinian, so my, should, you should all you know, assume my position on this issue, right? There is an occupation and it's an unjust occupation and we, and we need that liberation. And yet also, 
how do we accomplish that goal of equality and justice while understanding Jewish pain? That has nothing to do with Israel and occupation. It has to do everything with a history, a Jewish history in its own integrity of that story. And I'm saying that as a Muslim and understanding that pain from that perspective. So we do need to engage from a different, I think all sides need to use new language because we are being hurtful to each other in the language we are using. And we are all, it's not them, it's everyone, we are all being hurtful to each other. So there is a way to engage. I don't think it's either or. We need to develop the language and. And, and we need to all reflect on how our, our own language are, is actually hurting and how if we actually want change, then we all need to be part of that solution. Yeah. I agree that these two things are connected. I think some of it, some of the coalition issue has to do with, um, with keeping the eye on the bigger agenda, making sure when people say they want to be at the table, it's because they actually do have some shared goal. There has to be some shared goal and some sense of coming in good faith, not coming to take over, but coming to be part of and coming with a spirit of inquiry. Um, you know, on the Israel anti-Semitism question, I sit here as a Jew and a progressive Zionist and someone with family in Israel. Um, so I stand out in that way, I guess, probably in this room. Um, and I would say that language is very, I, I don't even like to use some of those terms because I think we all have assumptions about what they mean and, and, we, and they're not useful anymore, right? Pro-Israel, anti-Israel, pro-Palestinian, all of those things are, are too, overdetermined at this point. Um, I think that we need to be able to separate criticism of the same way that we do here, right? Say, I'm American, I hate this government, right? I don't support this government. I'm not giving up my um, American citizenship. I'm here to fight and make it what I think it should be. Part of why I remain a Zionist is because I am inspired by some of the utopian ideals that have not been achieved, that have been wildly unachieved, beyond wildly unachieved. Um, but that I hold on to because I believe, as I said, that change is possible. And because I have family on the ground in Israel who came there as refugees, and I don't want them to be refugees again. I don't want anyone to be refugees again, right? So it's imagining some kind of possibility that we do not yet see, but that we have to believe is out there because otherwise there is going to be too much pain and suffering. The anti-Semitism piece of this, I think, is really complicated because I think um, we are in a moment where we're trying to understand what the hell does anti-Semitism mean in 2019? And again, I speak as a Jew who thought that like focus, who until two years ago thought that the focus on anti-Semitism in the Jewish community was like old, old stories, misplaced energy, like let's move on to things that actually matter. Um, and I think in the last two years, there's been a reckoning of, for white Jews like myself recognizing the provisional nature of our whiteness. Um, and there's also, we're all trying to figure out like what is the relationship between white supremacy and anti-Semitism because they are for sure related and we're not gonna defeat white supremacy if we don't defeat anti-Semitism. And so that means we have to look very carefully at those tropes and be just very aware every time language around Jewish power, Jewish money comes up that we recognize that there is, there is a history there and however, not that we can't talk about those things, but we have to recognize that there is, that those words do something that we may not always intend. So I think there's just a lot of exploration that needs to be done right now. I don't think we know what it means. I say to my community all the time, we need to make the distinction between being uncomfortable and being unsafe. Right. Nobody should be unsafe, but everyone should be uncomfortable. But I don't, I'm not sure we know yet when we're unsafe and when we're not. I don't think we know. And so we have to be figuring that out. your question about um, the movement, I just, and many of you are already in the movement, but just in case you're not, there's really no gate that is like a person stands at the gate and is like, let me see your political credentials, let me see what you believe about every issue, what faith do you follow, what faith don't you follow, what your gender identity is, like nobody's at the door asking. So the movement is open to everyone. But to your point, there are shared goals. And in the movement, if you're gonna come to the movement, for example, as a woman who's, let's say, pro-life, you just have to come with the understanding that this is a pro-choice movement. And so if you're ready to sit at the table with pro-choice women leading the fight, then you're more than welcome to come. But you will not impose your pro-life agenda on the rest of the movement. So that's really what it's about. So everybody's welcome. Everybody's welcome. 
because it's, the movement is based on a set of basic principles of human dignity and a woman's agency and, and right to choose and being able to live safely and freely in our, our society regardless of our identity. And if you believe in the very basic fundamental principles like these, you're, you're more than welcome to come. This question of anti-Semitism is really important to me because I've been at the center of it. Um, and I think you said something that really just moved me right now and made me think about this even in a more deeper way, this idea of lack of safety versus discomfort and confusion and potentially us saying things that maybe make other people feel uncomfortable or maybe saying things where we in fact really do offend people because we're not sure of what we're saying or maybe we're, we're also evolving people. And I think that is very important. So when I see, for example, the attacks on a black Muslim woman refugee congresswoman and the double standard that often comes out of communities, many of whom white Jewish community, towards a black Muslim woman congresswoman, who yes, in fact, may have been engaging in tropes that she's now learning along the way. It is, but we don't see the same standard being put, for example, to a president that just told the Jewish people about their prime minister, right? And using tropes coming out of this administration of people who have real power that's when the movement gets fractured because people are like, wait a minute, how is this more, how is this worse? How is Ilhan making you less safe than this administration is? So that's where I call on my Jewish sisters and brothers, who many of whom have been very consistent in this, in basically saying, if you're gonna be mad about this, you better be extra mad about this. And that's the consistency that we're looking for in the movement. And, and just to give you how close this is, because this is not about a conflict in the Middle East and one that I'm probably never gonna figure out because it's been around way before I ever got here. It's about here in New York City. Just the last week, a, a member of the New York City Council said, Palestine does not exist. And these, this is what he said, so-called Palestinians. So basically what he said to, he's saying to me as a Palestinian is that I don't in fact exist. And if anybody knows any better than Jewish people about this idea of people who don't exist or shouldn't exist, right? And that's where I struggle in the movement. That there is no one pain that is more than another community, that we can't play oppression Olympics. All pain is valuable, all history is important. And we should be able to bring all our traumas to the table. So what happens sometimes in the movement, not just amongst Jews, but amongst all oppressed communities, is we're playing this oppression Olympics. And it's not okay. And, it's, and it, we gotta be able to understand priorities in the moment, who's the most hurt and broken in the moment, without having to also compartmentalize or put away our pain. No one's telling anybody, you don't have a historical trauma or you don't have, but not, in, in that moment, there's a black boy that got shot by the cops. And my, in, my, in that moment, my focus is on that mom, that community, that child in that moment. So, so, so in, this, in the spirit of having a movement, is about coming to the table and saying, I bring my pain and I wanna share my pain with you so that we can alleviate each other's pain, right? I don't wanna be burdened with somebody else's pain. I wanna share your pain, because I too have pain. And I'll end by saying this. This is a progressive movement with a new generation of young people who are global activists. We see our struggle intertwined with struggles of people in South America and in Central America and in Africa and in the Middle East and in Uyghurs in China and people all over the world. So we see our struggle intertwined with the people of Palestine, even though I myself am a Palestinian, but many in the movement are not Palestinian. And there now there's this new thing like, can we leave Palestine out because Palestine makes us uncomfortable? It's not gonna happen. And, there, and, I, and, and I'm just saying, I'm just saying that. But I'll end by just saying this, that just to understand and crystallize for you why Palestine comes into this right now. This generation believes that the struggle of the Palestinian people is our modern day ending of South African apartheid. It is our social justice, global social justice issue of our time. And so I'm seeing a commitment, and by the way, let's be clear, who's at the front line? Progressive Jews. Who interrupted Trump's speech yesterday at the Republican Jewish Coalition? Young American Jews. Who went to the birthright office to say, at least if you're gonna do birthright, show people the occupation, tell young people the truth, it's young American Jews. And also, listen, older Jews have been doing this for generations, but seeing this new generation, which means that they're standing on the shoulders of Jews who have been rooted in social justice in, that comes from their faith, I am heartened and I am hopeful. And there will be, peace if we realize that our liberations are bound up together and there cannot be a state 
that provides safety for one people at the expense of another people, and that's what the movement is about. I'm wondering in our last couple minutes uh, if you all, anybody wants to speak to essentially self-care, was with the question? Can I just say something to this young sister that asked this question right here about the... What's going to hold us together? Yeah, what's going to hold us hold together? together? Yeah. We have no choice, so you better find something. Because <laughs> for, 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 for different people will be different things. You got to find something that keeps you here. Because the opposing forces, and I know, and I appreciate Zainab, because I'm evolving, by the way. Like, I reflect a lot and I learn. I'm going to leave here with some new stuff that I'm going to contemplate on. Because I do want to believe that everybody, even those that are in our opposition to our values, are going to benefit from the work that we do. And they, too, will be safe, and they, too, will be loved, and they, too, will be embraced by the work that they do. But in the meantime, we do have opposing forces, right? And they are resource and they are well and they are strategic and they have taken over our supreme courts for decades to come and they have a long-term strategy and so there's a lot of pain that is coming not just the pain that we've seen so i'm just asking you to find something that keeps you here because we have no choice and we need to be here because there are so many people in our country who are counting on us and that is why when we were going through the controversies at the women's march the thing that I reflected on the most, and I said, for those who were upset, who had, you know, I thought to myself, what happens when we're destroyed and not here anymore? What happens to the people who are hurt and, and uncomfortable and wrestling with what's happening? When we're not here, when I'm not here, when this movement we built is not here, you, were just, you will just be less safe than you were before we were here. And so it's okay for us to disagree and fight and argue and have these wonderful, by the way, productive conversations. But at the end of the day, the first question you ask yourself is when some shit goes, excuse my language, sorry, in the church. When some, <laughs> sorry, when some mm, goes down, who are the people who are going to be fighting for me? And I promise you it is these kinds of faces that are going to come to mind. So I could, I'm going to disagree with probably all of you in the room on something. But I promise you, and you can count on me, that I'll be the first person on the front lines, and I'm ready to die for the things that I believe in. And I'm ready to die for all of us in this room. we we got to stop, and I want to just make a sentence that takes us back to yesterday. Or maybe it even takes us back to before we came here. And that sentence will be, for every one of these dyads, or these polarities, or these um, conflicts that we're in, you know, I'll be in a room being absolutely clear that I'm standing for my hijabi sisters, and I'm absolutely clear that I'm standing up for my Jewish sisters. I'm absolutely clear about all of that, right? And I'll be in a room where I think most of the people in the room are with me, in an interfaith space. But some of them will still be wondering about trans people. And some of them will still be wondering about bisexual people, and if that's really a thing. And some of them will still be wondering about gay, right? And I won't know for sure. Do you understand what I'm trying to say? So in that moment, like Linda said, like the black boys on the ground, boom. We understand we're dealing with that. We understand we're dealing with interfaith. We understand that we're dealing with sexuality. What I'm saying is I can never fully vet that that man, I'm gonna just make him a man because that's how I'm feeling, that that man in a collar, that Catholic priest, let's say, in a collar, I can never fully vet. He looked like he down with the interfaith thing, because he's here. I don't know what's in his heart about all the things that's in my heart. What I'm trying to say is I won't know and I still have to go. I'm saying I will not know, but I'm still going to get on the front line with Linda and them, and he'll be like, wow, look at that. And then maybe there'll just be some badass, amazing trans sister there, and he'll be like, oh my goodness. And she'll change his heart. That's right. But she'll change his heart because he got allowed to walk in the march on the way to tomorrow with us. I just, I just want to connect those dots for us. We cannot know for sure, but we'll make the norms, we'll make the 
the conscious choice. We'll try not to be angry. We'll invite. We'll invite. We'll invite. And people are going to fall out when they fall out because they're like, I can't hang. But I don't want to be closing the door all the time because I didn't check your card and see if you had all the initials and stuff on it. We don't. That's right. That's right. Amen, amen. And Danette has a last word. Oh, oh, sorry. Well, a couple of things. One is we need to stand in integrity. And the minute we are no longer in integrity and in our own truth, then we are not off center. You know, that's, that's what. And we are not all standing with integrity because that sometimes means criticizing our own community. And when you criticize your own community, there's a huge price to pay, and that's a testament. I mean, and Alice Walker is the one who's teacher, who taught us that with the cow purple, when she criticized her own community and she got punished for it, right? So we need to have that courage. This is a courageous moment. It's not only a fighting moment, it's a courageous moment of how do we stand. And that, for me, is revolutionary love. You know, it's, it's to start in that. Amen. Amen, my sisters.